This is called Bradford, brackets Bartat. The house belonged to Valerie and Brian Tordoff, Brian having to go away to do his national service. Valerie had been assaulted by a miner on her way back from a dance when she unwisely elected to walk the short distance home from where the bus had left her. She was beaten over the head and bleeding from the wounds and she decided to play dead as she confusedly tried to deal with the situation. She then ran to a neighbouring house and shocked the folk who answered the door who were confronted by an overwrought sobbing girl covered in blood and with torn clothing. They called the police and the man was eventually caught. After this, she felt she could not live alone and spent the year with her mother while we rented the house. We became firm friends with our landlords. The house was small, but we were able to put Ruth in the box room and Hilary in the front bedroom, while we had the back bedroom. A wall of ice used to form on the wall below the window of the box room in the winter. The house had a small garden and was within walking distance of some shops. Living next door to us were Mr and Mrs Wielden. We were told that she was the best kept secret of the war, having produced a baby with no one knowing or having the faintest idea that she was even pregnant. Our children used to slip under the fence and join them for breakfast. Quite unbeknownst to us, the Wieldons must have enjoyed their visits. Dr Isaac Kaner had a large stone house at the five-lane end junction on the margins of Rose and Eccles Hill. He had been in practice for many years. His children had left home and he had had a heart attack and although better was, as is so often the case, suffering from the diagnosis. His wife was also being grossly overprotective. He was in his 60s and assured me that he would soon be retiring. I would join as an assistant and be taken into partnership, eventually succeeding to the practice. We would rent the little house once the telephone was connected. Until then, I lived in being on the spot to deal with emergencies. By this time, Helen was pregnant with Sarah and had about eight weeks to go, so I enrolled her into Shipley Maternity Home, midwife run, and arranged that Mr George Craig, the specialist obstetrician, would look after her. He became a great friend and ally. Sarah was born on the 6th of September 1955, a delightful addition to our expanding family. The Caners were an odd couple, they were Jewish and, as far as we could see, mildly orthodox. Mrs Kaner liked us to visit them during Saturday so that we would poke the fire as they were religiously forbidden to do this. Whether this was true or just a ruse to get us to come in briefly with the children, we could never be sure. One virtue was that they had black currant bushes at the end of the garden, which were prolific. Having Jewish connections in my family background meant that I was able to cope with these curious religious dimensions that were to some extent familiar. My father, however, would have no truck with them. Helen took it all in her stride and began to build her own relationships and interests when the child load allowed it. Dr Kaner was an adequate clinician, despite bad training. This was common with all GPs in those days, which reinforced my vision of a specialist training programme for family doctors, hence my interest in the College of General Practitioners. More on this later. Mrs Kaner was kind to Helen and when they went to a luncheon party, she announced to her friends that Helen was a real English rose. When they went on holiday, she would invite us round to be given surplus food and fruit that wouldn't keep. The children were thrilled when she gave us a paper bag with the tail end of a rice pudding in it. 
I think the Caners regarded me as a difficult partner, for I had much higher standards, and being young did not suffer fools gladly, and was probably more blunt than perhaps I should have been. It was suggested that when we had a house, we should create a branch surgery away from the main surgery at Dr Caner's house. The practice was small for two doctors, and one of the aims was to build it up. As we were living in Rose Road, where the houses were being built, this could be an area for expansion. At Dr Caner's end, an enormous housing estate was being built, Thorpe Edge, with what proved to be an environmental and planning concrete disaster. Bradford Council demolished many adequate houses during a countrywide civic hysteria, breaking up with no insight at all family networks, rehousing entire neighbourhoods into estate jungles. They chose the families who would go there, and some roads were entirely peopled by families they regarded as substandard or criminal. They also concentrated on young families so that there was a severe imbalance with too many young children, and poor planning largely meant that they could only play in the streets. They did not foresee the mayhem and devastation that could be wrought by the young thugs these estates produced. There was a lack of responsibility and pride in their dwellings, and there was little attempt to clean up litter or reprove bad behaviour. There was a soulless uniformity and lack of colour and landscaping. Trees and bushes and flowers were immediately destroyed, as was grass, and negative attitude pervaded everything. It was a civic hell created by planners who lived in their little oases of village and rural beauty. It is still an unfolding story. We now had to find a house. One option was to build, and there was a space opposite another doctor who had a practice in Bradford. He must have seen me looking at their area and finding out about it, because in no time at all one of the partners was building a house there. I hadn't realised that there was a cutthroat edge to general practice. Hitherto I had worked in a cooperative inter-doctor environment where we had not seen each other as threats. This reminded me of an old man who came into the surgery some years later and said that he was visiting because he was retiring. Although we had not met, he wanted to see me to round off his visit. He had been a medical representative, not associated with one drug company, as so often happens today, but supplying doctors with their needs. We had a long chat. He said that when he started, doctors just did not speak to each other and that he was their source of information about the neighbouring practices. Dr so-and-so has a sphygmomanometer for measuring blood pressure. Perhaps an order would follow. This illumination of GP behaviour was a real eye-opener for me. The difficulties in cooperating with colleagues was explained. They had always isolated themselves, presumably because of long-held customs stretching back into the past of mutual mistrust and competitive secrecy. We continued to look for a house, and one was advertised at the top of Car Lane in Rose Village. It was situated just at the end of a tarmac road at the point that it changed into a track. The problem was the price, £4,000. To obtain a mortgage, you had to be earning annually about one-third of the sum borrowed. We had not been well enough paid in any of the jobs I had had to have built up much of a lump sum. Nor were we going to be earning more than 700 a year unless the practice grew and provided more income. I went to see the BMA services and talked it over with them. Their advice was to go ahead. We will give you a 100% mortgage. When you are asked for your earnings, just say £1,000 a year expected, you will get there in time, and the interest rate is 6% over 25 years. 
We took out insurance to cover mortgage payments, earnings and sickness and death, so we were able to move in. The Hills was a three-bedroom house, built about 1914 by a builder for himself, so it was well built. It also had an adjacent wash house and separate garage. The dining room was wood-panelled with a marble fireplace and there was a similar fireplace in the lounge, which had a square bay window. At the top of the stairs was a tiny box room. The garden surrounded the house on all sides, and there was a large greenhouse with cold frames and a kitchen garden. In front of the house was the track, and there was a wood with an old quarry in it that was invisible from the house. There were cottages either side and a housing estate on the side of the wood stretching up to the village. Behind the cottages was Idle Moor, at that time totally underdeveloped. On the left-hand side, looking from the front gate, was a lane with our garden hedge alongside, as well as a ditch that had water running through it. Behind the house was a council estate, largely housing council employees. The cottages and surroundings were rural, with horses, pigs and hens being kept. We were buying the house from a man who had gone bankrupt. Apparently, he was the son of the owner of a cinema chain in the area who was very wealthy. Unfortunately, he did not, as so often happens, teach his son how to handle money or run a business. The son went on cruises, lavishly decorated the inside of the house and got through the fortune in four years. A tragedy, for he had to move into a small semi and was said to be most unhappy. We were the beneficiaries. Many years later, the window cleaner said to Helen, I'm afraid I'm going to have to put up my price by sixpence. I hope you don't mind. I shall also be retiring in two years. In talking to him, she discovered that he had never charged us a lot. I could see how you had to struggle in the beginning, he said. You had no carpets, very little furniture and scarcely used the front room. We forget how much we can be observed. He was a nice man. Also, some years later, Helen saw a man standing by the gate. He had an embarrassed youth with him. They looked as though they were wanting something, and so she asked if she could help. Some time ago, said the older man, I came here when the council was doing the back, and we had to pipe up the ditch. There was a child bride here then with several children, and I wondered if she was still here. You are looking right at her, Helen said. I do apologise, ma'am, he said. I do hope you don't mind me coming, but you made a real impression on all of us. Helen regaled me with the story of my snatching her from the cradle and of this conversation, and we were highly amused. We decided to use the wash house as the branch surgery. I did quite a lot of the work myself, for we didn't have spare cash, and with the help of our joiner, Mr England, we created a waiting room and built an examination couch over a long stone sink. We also had to remove the copper. In the corner of the building, next to the end of the waiting room, was an outside lavatory. After some years, we employed a builder to make an adequate waiting room and secretarial office. The latter included a large hatch that was designed to be the puppet theatre, of which more later. We made friends with our local geriatrician, Roy McCouche, a Scotsman from Inverness who was deeply religious. We free. He had extended into Leeds Road Hospital which had two wards, and he asked me to look after them. This was a welcome addition to the practice finances, so Dr Kaner readily concurred. We livened up those long-stay wards by having tomato-growing competitions among the patients and having ward cats 
rather than rent a kill to deal with the mice, and at considerably less expense. We also connected the two segregated wards, male and female, with a day room so that the patients could meet up together. The matron, a lady from Skye, so another Scot, was resistant to the intermingling idea, but she preferred it to the other proposal of having mixed wards. The children would sing carols on the wards every Christmas, and on Christmas Day, I was expected to carve the turkey. The patients, who were able to, went on a bus tour in the summer, and Matron was much in favour of this. It was a lovely idea, but the following day, when talking to them, few could remember anything about it, and many were irritable and tired. It was worth it, of course, for those who could remember. We enjoyed the garden and the vegetable patch, and Helen became an expert with vegetables and mist propagation in the greenhouse. Life was becoming routine, and we had Mrs England to clean the surgery and Mrs Hutchison to babysit. Mrs England was the wife of our joiner. They lived in Eccles Hill, and he had a plywood map of England fixed to his gate. He couldn't drive, and so had a hand cart that he used to go to the various jobs with his son. Mrs England was ashamed of this and liked to portray him as an up-to-date modern joiner. She said, every time someone comes to the door and I'm taking an order, I pray that Alan will not come round the corner with his hand cart. She cleaned the surgery every week for us, and one day I pointed out that there was a cobweb on the ceiling. What do you want for your ten bob, she asked. Blood? Mrs Hutchison was an elderly widow who also lived in Eccleshill. She was adored by the children for she could tell them stories, keeping them up until they heard our car in the drive and was also good company. She, like her sisters and their generation, all went to school until 10 years old when they worked part-time in the mill. The result was a good education. They could all calculate, write good letters and were stalwarts of their community. They all supported each other and seemed very content and not materialistic. In those days, the mills had no lavatories, just the boys' field and the girls' field. They all wore clogs and were, of course, very knowledgeable about weaving and cloth. They embarrassed the children by making remarks about them in front of them. Hasn't she got lovely teeth? Or what lovely arms? At the Christmas visit, the children sang them carols and were given baby sham to drink, which we assumed was non-alcoholic. They were also given biscuits and sweets. Mrs H developed mixedema thyroid deficiency right under our noses. I was surprised we had not spotted it ourselves, but it does illustrate how incipient changes can pass almost unnoticed. In her late 80s, we heard that she had developed cancer of the mouth, a most unpleasant condition. Their generation has largely passed away. One had to salute them because they were robustly self-sufficient, there was no benefit culture and they were the better for it. They got on with their lives, were contented and happy communities that the modern social worker would have classified as deprived. They didn't have a lot, didn't need a lot, and dealt with all the ups and downs of existence with a happy cheerfulness. Welding all this together was a strong community supporting and helping where necessary, also living in family groups. Their children, unlike today's, were brought up under the watchful eye of all the neighbours and friends in the area. Misbehaviour was soon spotted and acted upon, a glorified neighbourhood watch. Everybody knew them, their names, their families and the board man visited the same day the home of any child who was absent from school. The community exerted a subtle pressure which worked in contrast to today's problem estates. 
These were created by the politicians and others who decimated so many towns in a frenzy of ill-considered rebuilding. What is more, they over-regulated the private landlord, so that the tenant had too many rights. For some people, one way of having a pension in one's old age was to have a house to let and live off the rent coming in. This was a valuable asset, destroyed thoughtlessly by our legislators. The pendulum swung too far. Local authority housing was put in its place. The bureaucrats replacing a supportive community and tenants were made to abide by the rules. They were governed inflexibly, with no humanity or any feeling that they should care for their communities. This is what has bred the social evils of our time. The practice grew slowly and we settled into a routine. Unfortunately, Dr. Kaner was unenthusiastic about progress. Redecorating the surgery, modernising the furniture and increasing the equipment was anathema to him. He also said that he would be retiring shortly. He found that the money coming in was increasing and this led to postponement of the retirement date. I was getting frustrated and held back by this and our relations began to be strained. I became, as his wife told Helen, a difficult partner. The saving grace, as far as medical life went, was the Royal College of General Practitioners. We became very friendly with another GP, Mike Priestman, and his wife Mary, a dentist. We were newcomers like them, and we both had young children, and the practices we worked in we were not altogether happy with. We had a 24-hour responsibility for our practices, and rotors were still in their infancy. If we were away from the practice, the partner had to agree to be on duty. Dr. Kaner's wife maintained that he could not do this very often or on a rotational basis because of his health. Being on duty meant that you needed to be easily reached if urgent calls came in. Mike and I built up a system of weekly visits to each other and instead of babysitters put the children to bed in each other's houses. We had a meal, shared frustrations and could transfer the phone to the number we were at. This worked well. We all enjoyed it and it helped to keep us sane. An added advantage was that Mike and I could have a collective look at each other's difficult cases and help each other plan their management. Both Mike and Mary smoked like chimneys. Mary had trained as a dentist and continued to practice, but the expense and limited time made her give it up. They kept dogs and to our amusement, when the bitch what they had was on heat, Mary tied her to a tree in the garden, so she became a sitting duck. Some months later, the animal seemed to be unhappy and in pain, and they were surprised when the vet told them that she was in labour. They had cats as well, and we were given a kitten, whether we wanted it or not. Their cat had a matted long coat, so we were not too keen on our present. However, the children were delighted, and we called her Little Black Quasha from the book called Little Black Sambo, now grossly politically incorrect, and which must have been given a different title. She had a short coat and lived to be 23 years old before she developed severe bowel problems and became wasted. We thought that the time had come to put her down, so I anaesthetised her using a jam jar full of ether and kept her head in it until she stopped breathing. I believe that this was illegal, as it had to be done by a vet. Frances was with Helen in WH Smith's and she nudged her mother and pointed at a book title, Murder is Easy, by Agatha Christie. It was an echo of the tension surrounding the loss of an old friend. Quasha was a character and intelligent. If we leant a ladder against the garage wall and threw a piece of rolled up paper onto the roof, she would run up the ladder and retrieve it. We always put her out at night for there were plenty of places for her to shelter if the weather was bad and the roads were quiet as well. 
She slept most of the day and could get in and out of the house by jumping up and climbing out of the ventilator in the dining room. If you didn't know this, she could frighten you by suddenly appearing. We were pursued by a firm that sold German wine. They sent cards that could be returned if you wanted a tasting session to be arranged. Unbeknownst to us, Francis, aged 14, returned it and I had to agree when the man phoned up to see him one evening. He came with a little black bag filled with pink hot water bottles, which were in fact cooling bags. He went through the routine, starting with the cheap wines and finishing with the very expensive. He was sitting on the settee beneath the ventilator the cat used. Jonathan and Sarah were also in attendance, lovebirds not really interested in anything but themselves. Francis was swigging down all that was on offer. At the end, I offered to buy a bottle, but he informed me he only sold by the case, so it was an expensive evening. We had got to the stage of receiving the case and handing over the cheque when the poor man was startled out of his wits by the cat jumping in. He looked at us wildly and beat a hasty retreat. It took two years before they stopped sending cards or telephoning. We are not great lovers of German wine anyway. Relations with the Caners deteriorated. He was now taking extended holidays but still not retiring. We eventually decided to split up, which had to be done legally. We became the talk of the district because the Eccles Hill folk were keenly interested in the excitement of the whole process. I needed a surgery in Eccles Hill and I thought I had a first option on the Caner's house, which would have been ideal for a group surgery building. Dr Caner, however, was not going to be of any help. In the end, the house was sold to a local international harvester factory and was demolished, while the Caners went off and settled in Israel.